As you know, my intention <clears throat> in this series of talks is to speak on questioning, at times on doubt. And whenever one touches upon that kind of subject, one is likely to be criticized severely for undermining other people's faith in its simplicity, in its wholeness. And yet, I'm deeply convinced that each of us has got questions which are unresolved in his or her mind and heart and experience of life. And most of the time, we close our eyes on the problem. We say, I will find an answer later, or it must be true because the church says so, or because someone whom I trust says so. And the result is that we never mature ourselves, either in a daring trust of God or in an ever-deepening understanding. What I'm trying to do is not to undermine anyone's faith, but to force myself and others, perhaps, to look at what believed to be true and to ask ourselves, to what extent am I personally certain of the truth which I proclaim? This is paramount important for a priest who must proclaim God's own truth, but is confronted every time, not with doubt, but with a hesitation. Can I, from the paucity of my experience, from the limitations of it, proclaim God's own truth? On the other hand, each of us, all of us, we are confronted with the prayers of the church. The church is a very complex body of people. On the one hand, it is the place where God dwells. On the other hand, it is made of people who are frail and in the making. To a certain extent, we all are God's people because all of us, we have touched the hem of his garment, even if we have not gone deeper in, into our acquaintance with him, if our meeting has not been a revelation. 
But on the other hand, together, in our togetherness, we possess more truth, more knowledge, more experience than any one of us singly, separately. And in that sense, the church is a wonderful body because at the heart of it sends the Lord Jesus Christ with the revelation, the proclamation, the embodiment of God's truth and the Holy Spirit who breathes on us and helps us to understand. On the other hand, as I have said already, there is in each of us an incompleteness because we have not yet reached the maturity which is that of the saints and which even in the saints is not fulfilled until the end of their life, perhaps until the end of history. And I want today to attract your attention to a certain number of things. As I have said, we all read the prayers in which the experience of saints is embodied. This experience may be extremely deep, almost a complete knowledge, and yet it is expressed in words that are our own words with all the limitations of a human vocabulary. Moreover, when we read these prayers, we read them in one language which is ours, which is not the language in which they have been coined after an experience which is beyond the words themselves. And so we must when we read the prayers, take in what they have got to say to us. And at the same time, whenever we have a chance to ask ourselves, are the words which we are using, do they mean really what we read in them? I will give you an example. We use the word sinner time and again. And to us, a sinner is someone who contravenes the commandments of God, which is perfectly true. But there is something deeper and more tragically important in the notion of sin. St. James, in his epistle tells us that to sin means to cross from God's territory to the territory of his adversary. If you want an image, a river 
separating two regions, two kingdoms, the one belongs totally, exclusively to God. The other one has been betrayed into the hands of evil by human unfaithfulness. To sin consists in crossing the river away from the realm of God into the realm of doubt, of twilight, and of evil. On that level, yes, there is the danger of evil doing, of contravening the commandments which God gave us to protect us against the consequences of our betrayal. But the essence of it is our readiness to leave the realm of God to enter into another realm. We never think of sin in those terms. We think of sins in concrete terms of evil doing, lying, etc. Not in terms of our unfaithfulness to the one who has created us in an act of love and who in an act of love has become one of us in order to share our life and to die of our own sins. This is one example, and I don't want to dwell on many others. I will come back to the notion of love, because we often, or continuously, we say that God is love. But do we know at all what love is, what it means? We think of love legitimately in human terms. But is that all there is to it? We'll come back to that in a moment. To begin with, I would like us to dwell for a short while on a prayer, which is read by the priest during the singing of the great litany in the liturgy. It is so easy to pronounce these words, to read them, to approve of them, to agree with what they say. And then suddenly, one may discover that we stand as it were, before the judgment of the words which we have just pronounced. <clears throat> o Lord our God, your glory is insuperable, your might is immense, your mercy 
is infinite. Your love of men is infinite also. My translation by memory is not precise, but it says what uh, lies in it. When we speak of God, and we say that his glory shines so that we are blinded by its this shining, that his power is so mighty, it seems to us that we say something simple, understandable. Do we? What do we do know about the shining of God? St. Gregory of Nyssa, speaking on the subject, says something to the effect that the shining of God is such that it blinds us but we can, because we cannot look at this intensity of light. And we should then speak of the divine darkness. So that subjectively, in reality, God shines. But in our experience, the nearer we come to seeing the glory of God, the more we are blinded the more it becomes inaccessible to us, invisible. Are we aware of it? If we think of the glory of the shining in simple terms, it's easy to imagine a God brilliant, shining, like the stars in heaven, like brightness of the day. But can we look at the sun straight and not be blinded? What do we know about what it means that God's shining is beyond words? Have we ever thought of this? The same is true about his might. Of course, it's easy to say that God's might is infinite. That if he is God, he can do anything. And yet, look at the world in which we live. Look at the evil there is in this world. Beyond this, look at the story of the Incarnation. The Almighty God, in order to defeat evil, gives his Son unto death. Where is this insuperable strength 
in mind. There is something more to it than simply might as we see it in history at the hands of kings and warriors. His might is infinite, and yet he is defeated, defeated by everything which is evil in us. Thought, desire, words, action, individual, collective. So that when we start reading this prayer, we must ask ourselves, what do I know? What do I know? What do I understand? And if I don't understand, why can't I just say, Lord, I stand in awe between the incomprehensible. I stand in awe, in silence, and in adoration, because the words I have used only tell me that I understand and know nothing except one. I know you, O oh Lord, not in this glory, not in this might, but in your humility of your son's incarnation, in the generosity of your gift of your son for my salvation. Oh God, how can that be? Or if you prefer, take it this way. A love which can go to that measure is something which is beyond comprehension, something so immeasurably great that I can only fall on my knees and adore. But then there are the further words. The mercy is infinite. The love for men also. And then we say these words because somehow from the experience of the church, from the depths of our own very limited but real experience, we know that these words are true. And yet, at times, we, we doubt them. Your mercy is infinite. Lord, 
I look at the world around me, a world which you love, and the horror of it is such that I can't understand how you can endure it. You gave the world, men in particular, freedom. And the result is this horror of history. How can I understand you? Is that an act of love? That love for mankind? That mercy? When we think of it theoretically, as I'm trying to do now, it's awkward. It's inconvincing, perhaps, to you. But I will give you an example. A believing Russian woman had a grandson. At the age of seven, he died of illness. And I remember her telling me, I don't believe anymore in God. If he had any mercy in him, he would not have allowed my little grandson to die after a long and painful illness. I was young, insensitive, and sharp. And I said to her, that was during the, immediately after the war, I said to her, have you never thought of the thousands of children who have died of illness, of murder, during this war and in the course of all human history? Didn't that prevent you from believing in God? And she looked at me with a candor which I still am amazed by. She said, what did that matter to me? It was not my grandson who died. This example is very sharp, crude. But ask yourselves if in the course of your life, short or long, you have not been confronted with that kind of dilemma. You could recognize the love of God the mercy of God, all the positive qualities of God, until of a sudden, one thing happened to you, 
or to someone whom you love far beyond yourself. And all that certainty and trust collapsed. Most of the time, when it collapses, we shut our eyes and we do not go straight to the consequences. We do not say, and therefore, I don't believe in God anymore. We say, how can that be? How terrible. We shut ourselves, we shut our eyes, our mind and heart. But take this short prayer, four words, the glory, the power, the mercy, the love of mankind, each of them confronts us with a problem of our own faith and our own experience. We can resolve the problem up to a point by saying, I believe, Lord, forgive my lack of faith. If it is sincere, if it's really a cry of pain in our own heart, then it is all right. It is the beginning of a relationship of truth between God and me. But if it is simply a way of shirking responsibility, shrugging our shoulders and saying, in words of the gospel, what can I do? So it is, unless you help me, I stay with my unbelief. But these words, which are not in the text, which I have added, if you don't help me, are words addressed to God, to Christ, and saying, you must help or else you are in the wrong. I give you perhaps a dark image of things now. But whenever we read a prayer, it forces us, if we are attentive and honest, to ask ourselves, where do I stand? What do I know from experience? How much do I know God personally to be able to trust him in this context? 
and at times we could add a cry of gratitude to God that in spite of our doubts, our lack of understanding, more than this, of our turning away from him, he remains faithful. I have heard people tell me that there is a solution. In the book of Revelation, there is a passage in which all the horrors of the reign of Antichrist are described, the death of the martyrs, and when everything is over, the martyrs turn to God and say, you were right in all your ways. Our martyrdom was right. Our suffering was right. The horror through which we have gone was right. We bless you. But who of us has the faith, the courage, the greatness of heart that would allow him or her to say these words. I have taken as an example this very simple little prayer, which I read for years with a sense of joy and beauty, and which gradually grew in my experience in my mind and heart is a challenge. It's a challenge that stands at the threshold of the liturgy. It follows the word, blessed is the kingdom, and it's read by the priest during the litany. It's the very beginning. No, in morning prayers, evening prayers, I have already mentioned that, but I will just repeat it shortly. We say words and express thoughts and share feelings that belong to the saints. We cannot always identify with them. But at times, we have an inkling, we have an incipient experience of what the saint said, and we can therefore share the whole words of prayer, because we know that I know enough of it to be able to say the whole. But at times, I think we find it practically impossible because these prayers which we read in morning prayers and evening prayers and akafis and so on and canons express the experience of life, experience of God, 
experience of self, of one saint after the other. And we must be realistic enough, I don't even use the word humble enough, to understand that if we can identify with one of these prayers, we can thank God for it. But can we identify with 10, 12 prayers that constitute the evening and morning prayers? Can we identify in succession with, the, with St. John Chrysostom, with St. Basil, with so many other saints and say, yes, I contain them all? No, we can't. And we must then, when we read these prayers, read them with thoughtfulness and understanding. We must take a phrase and say to ourselves that I can say from within my small experience but with all my heart and mind. I may not know all the depths of it. I may discover a depth in it which I don't yet even perceive. But what I perceive, yes. I can identify with. But this next phrase, I can't really understand. I can turn to the saint and say, you use these words. I don't really understand the experience which lies at the root of them. But they sound true. So I will repeat them. And you pray with me and bring them before the face of God. Because it is your experience in which I'm trying to merge. It's your experience that perhaps carries me for a short while like a river carries a little skiff. And then there are other things which we cannot honestly say and we must be able, we must be honest enough to turn to God and say, Lord, this saint, Basil, John, Metaphrastus, whoever else, Simeon, the new theologian, knew that what he says is true. I don't. At times, it is better to say, I cannot read these words because it will be a lie on my part. At times, one can say to God, I will read them because I believe there is truth in them and perhaps they will reach me and transform me inwardly. But we cannot simply read them because they are written. As an illustration, 
of the effect of a prayer. I will tell you something of our experience in this very church. We had in the choir an elderly man who sang with the most beautiful bass voice. At such a moment, he fell ill, was taken to hospital with cancer. I went to see him daily, and daily he waned. And one day I came, and the matron said to me, what an unfortunate day it is. He has lost consciousness, and so you will not be able even to pray with him. But what is also terrible is that his wife and daughter, who had been away for all these months, unable to come to him, have arrived today, and they cannot enter into contact with him. I went to see them. The wife and daughter sat together on one side. And I thought, if all the prayers which he has sung have settled at the depths of his being, are interwoven with everything in him, these words must bring him back. And I knelt down and began to sing, oh, how imperfectly, miserably, songs from Holy Week and Easter. And as I sang, one could feel life welling up in this man. And the moment came when he opened up his eyes and I said to him, your wife and daughter have come to say goodbye to you. Look left. He looked left, saw them, they kissed one another, they said goodbye, and then I said to him, and now, Go in peace. And he sank back and died. The words which had been singing throughout his life, the words which had reached him in different ways and degrees, were so interwoven with his soul and being that hearing them sound so imperfectly as I did brought him back to earth. This is to say that even if we are not capable of understanding every word of the prayers, we should read them, read them attentively, thoughtfully, putting all our heart and mind to it, trying to understand 
and in the course of the day, at odd moments, recapture one phrase or another and ask ourselves, what does it actually mean? How does it affect me? What do I say to God when I repeat with this saint the words he spoke? And gradually, through the words, through the images, through sharing the experience which is put in a limited way in the words of the prayers, we may outgrow ourselves and enter deeper into the knowledge of God. But at this point, I want to say, to repeat what I said earlier, that the prayers which we read in English or in Slavonic, practically always were written in another language. And the translation which we, find, which we give to the words of these prayers may limit their meaning, may slot them. And therefore, we must begin with using these words and allow them as they are to reach us in mind and heart and then begin to ask ourselves what did they mean to those people who wrote them? What did these words mean in the language in which they were written. I'll give you an example. We use the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a perfect prayer as it is, but in the original, it's not a sinner, but the sinner, it says. I don't know whether you perceive immediately the difference of impact, but a sinner means I'm one of the many, 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 and I turn to you with my cry. If I say the sinner, it means that I am more unfaithful more imperfect than anyone else because I was given so much and respond so little. And in each prayer there are words that in the original had another meaning, another nuance. And so we must not be prisoners of the words we use. 
if using words of the prayer of one saint or another, we feel constricted, we feel there is more to it, let us try to understand what more there is. From our own poor and yet true experience, I think I will stop at this point and next time I would like to go on with this search for meaning, for truth and bring to you as example the beginning of Genesis and other passages from the Holy Scriptures because they reveal to us by the variety of understanding which the fathers of the church have put in their comments something at times very important but to this I will come next time Let us keep quiet for a while and pray together.